Today, we're talking to Avi Friedman, CEO at Kentik, about the intersection of network observability and AI, how they're tracking cyber attacks in Ukraine, and Avi's time in Japan. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. I was curious for you to continue and tell me, like, what are you doing in, in Asia? <laughs> so we have probably a couple dozen customers in Asia. So um, there is a conference, Janog, the Japanese Network Operator Group Conference, that uh, is the week before the Pacific Telecom Council conference that happens in Hawaii. And I decided to go to both conferences and wound up getting to neither, but it was an excuse to start scheduling an Asia trip. We had too many customer meetings, so we did a couple days in Seoul beginning of last week um, where I learned that I was mispronouncing Taekwondo, which I practice at practicing. I sort of suck at it, but, you know, I've been doing <laughs> it. Um, and, uh, you know, a little over a week in Japan, and then um, uh, we have a bunch of customers there as well. And uh, And my wife and I, like going to Japan and then Hong Kong where my wife has not been back to and decided to do a few days while we were here. I just decided we're getting older and once I adjust to the time zone, might as well, you know, stay over here for a little bit longer. So where's your permanent residence? Uh, in Seattle. I'm from okay. Philadelphia. So, okay. Yeah. Very cool. And so you guys, what do you, what's your favorite thing to do over in Japan? Well, uh, that would have to be eating. Um, and, uh, most of the kinds of Japanese cuisine I love, uh, and, uh, that's about, that's probably 80% of my Japanese is food. Uh, 15% is Shotokan karate words and, mm -hmm. you know, 5% is don't touch my mustache and, you know, uh, uh you know, all, all, all the, all the don't touch must day and all the, all the, you know, the 20 words that you learn to, to, uh, grease uh, social lubrication. Um, second might be sumo, although we didn't go to sumo, even though it is on. Um, I just didn't have time this trip. Uh, but there are actually bleacher seats was exciting because in July we were there and we went to sumo in Nagoya and, uh, we had to sit tatami. Uh, we didn't have to sit, we didn't have to sit seiza where you like sit on your knees, but we had to sit tatami and, uh, my American body is not designed uh, really to do that. Uh, so we sort of cheated and got these little foots, footstools at the Daiso and sort of sat on the footstools. Like the two inch of elevation helped a lot, but so it's fun to see the sumo, uh, you know, so much more inter intimate stadiums than we have in the U.S. I heard from a friend that the technology there is crazy when you're walking around the streets and the vendors and all of that, that it's just incredibly advanced technology. Is that true? So... I think that used to be even more true. I'm not sure that's as much true, but um, Libby, who runs People for Kentic, lived in Japan for a number of years and taught. And I said to her this morning, "Do you do you notice how quiet it is? You know, in the United States sometimes, because when you go into a food hall, or even when you go into the convenience store, uh, Family Mart, Seven Eleven, Lawson's." there's everything is like talking to you and beeping and every time the door is open and everyone's, uh, you know, Hiroshima and, or, you know, just like, as you're, as you're walking by all the stands in the food halls, it's all very, uh, it's all very sonorous in its own way, but it's definitely a different experience. So, 
but now that we have Google Maps and and you know electronic payment and these things that you used to in Korea and Japan there used to be cell phones for that. Like I used to go to Akihabara, Electric Town, and get like Sony Vio laptops that Dynamism used to import for five thousand dollars, and it was cheaper to go to Japan and get them. But That's Apple makes cool. some really good laptops with like high resolution, good battery, and they run Unix. So what more do you want? You know, I want the Vision Pro. That's what I want. Ah, okay. Well, you can. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you can have that. I guess that'll be an interesting one. Is uh, is uh, I'm, I'm I'm sort of following from a distance. You know, smart glasses and VR in the intersection there, and uh, hopefully no one will be beat up for being pre- creepy with those. So you know, we'll see. So how do I pronounce the name? Is it Kentik? Is that how I say your yeah, company name? Yeah, Kentik. K-E-N-T-I-K. Okay. okay. And what is it exactly that you guys are doing? Uh, so network observability. So we take telemetry from the infrastructure layer that's in and around the network, and we make it usable for people. So uh, when an Uber driver asks me, what, what, what does my company do? I say, we make the internet go. Or mm-hmm. next version longer, we make the internet, you know, we make networks fast and secure. Um, and so our customers are IT service providers, um, you know, web companies, uh, people that deliver their packets as their revenue, people that, uh, that it doesn't go, the company doesn't go. Uh, those are the kind of folks that we are direct buyers. And then we have other users in the company and security and cluster operations and work with other observability players, but that's primarily what we do. Nice. Are you the founder of the company? I am a founder, uh, and I run the company. Yes. How did that come to be? How did the company start? Well, I was at a company called Akamai, um, large content distribution network for about 10 years and did a bunch of federal work. And after I left Akamai, some people asked me to build, you ever see Silicon Valley, the show? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. They wanted me to build the box. So I built okay. the box, not the same logo as Silicon Valley, but I built the box which could see packets and run a bunch of applications. And everyone that bought the, the box was like, what do we do with all this tr-, you know, data? I was like, well, that's a much more interesting problem. Because I started an ISP in 1992, and I was at a big backbone after that. And I was at Akamai, which is recurring revenue. And I've always been into recurring revenue. Um, and so decided, you know, there's some hard problems there and talked to a bunch of people. And they said, yeah, we need help running our infrastructure. We don't really have good dashboards and, you know, like driving a car uh, you know, sort of with some speed indicators and stuff like that and, and, and not really understanding what's going on, you know, for their infrastructure. Um, and then when I said, would you be willing to send me data so I could mock this up on my Usenet infrastructure? Um, they were like, oh, we'd rather have it as a service. We know it's a ton of, it's a ton of data. Like we wouldn't want to actually run this. So it's like, okay, that seems, that seems aligned. So, uh, we started the company 10 years ago, 2014, uh, mocked it up. Um, and, uh, you know, got a bunch of people using it and raised venture capital later 2014 and then started going. Share with me more if you can. I'm just interested in the partnership aspect of like you founding the company with other people. Like how did that go about? So in hindsight, whether it was in partnership or not, another interesting thing we can talk about. I wish I had bootstrapped a little longer, uh, because what is now called product-led growth is sort of harder to get religion about once you actually start growing and have massive customers that, you know, um, that you can use people to leverage onboarding complex infrastructure, you know, things like that. Whereas if you, I think if you 
if you are decide to bootstrap, not just from an economic perspective, but from a onboarding perspective, you have to seek that elegance that the lazy, you know, the, the outstanding architects and developers are lazy. They seek the elegance because they don't want to do things over and over. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I wish I had done that and it might've been with the same partners, but I had a friend who I actually introduced, uh, to run operations at Cloudflare. I had known him for some time. I had worked with him on some projects before. And, uh, you know, he was like, oh, you should move out to Silicon Valley and, you know, whatever this idea that you want to do, you know, you should start it out there. Uh, he introduced me to, uh, they're both named Ian, um, Ian, uh, Pai, who, uh, is, uh, was the first employee at Cloudflare who I'd waved hello to because long time ago I gave, I gave them their first servers. Uh, and then again, uh, my, my friend Ian Applegate, uh, referred there to run operations and, you know, we were talking and decided to start the company. And then before we raised venture capital, um, a friend of mine introduced me to someone that he thought I would like, who thought I was still on the internet infrastructure industry. And I thought he was in the internet infrastructure industry, but he joined to lead the sales effort at Kentic, which we weren't necessarily looking for at the time, but in hindsight has been really great. So, um, not quite like, you know, Silicon Valley the show, although it was contemporaneous with us. So it was sort of amusing in a few different ways. So, um, so you said, you, you know, the, the, one of the first employees at Cloudflare? Uh, yes, he's my, he, I, um, I guess it can be ambiguous to say partner nowadays, but in, yeah. I'm old. So, you know, business partner, <laughs> you, you use the word partner, business yeah. partner. Uh, yeah. Uh, Ian Pai, he was the first employee. He was Lee's, uh, office mate, I believe at, um, at, uh, Santa Cruz. Um, oh, so, and Ian took my, well, I, I sometimes say beautiful C code. He would probably argue that, uh, but he <laughs> took my C code, uh, and rewrote it into go. And he promised oh, okay. me that go was like, okay, because, uh, I said, oh, can you do static memory allocation if you want to? You're like, can you, do you have to have a garbage collection? Oh yeah, you could absolutely do it. Which we did later on by writing a, a slab allocator. So like you could, but it wasn't actually like easy. I said, like, can you make static binaries? And it took us like four years to figure out how to make static binaries, you know, for our agents with Go. But we figured it out. So uh, people like Go, I'm not one of those people. I don't think that uppercase <laughs> should be scope. But I don't like Python, and that's the network language, because I don't think that white space should be syntax. So, you know, it's uh, I'm, I'm an old I'm an old curmudgeon. Uh, and it doesn't matter, because I don't write the code for the company. So, Do you have any current favorite uh, authors that you learned a lot from when you were writing code? Who wrote Sea Traps and Pitfalls? Um, that was a good book. I just saw it on my bookshelf. Uh, when I'm at home, I have a bookshelf of my 90s favorites. The uh -huh. Lions book? That was Andrew Andrew Koenig. Ah, that was a really good book. That was a really good book. Andrew Koenig, uh, Sea Traps and Pitfalls. Um, you like Martin Fowler at all? I've met Martin Fowler. I do like him. I'm a little bit less, I, I you know some of the broad pattern thinking is just not, I don't know. It's not my jam. Um, you know, uh, I'm more into low level distributed system type stuff. And mm. a lot of the stuff he writes about is, uh, uh, you know, is a little bit higher level than that. My favorite essay from, uh, mythical man monk is mm. not the, uh, is not the, uh, how many, you know, adding birthing people doesn't make a baby faster. It's actually 
there's probably a reason why the cruft is there. I forget what the title of that essay was, but, uh, you know, it basically says, unless you think like when you, when you say, oh my God, this code is so horrible, we must immediately rewrite it. Not even looking at the code and understanding why it's horrible. I feel like that with the internet too. It's like, oh, let's replace all the routing protocols. Like, do you have any idea why they're working and not working and why, like, you know, like, again, I feel like get off my lawn, you know, Statler and Waldorf up in the, we tried that in the 1300s and the internet didn't work. You know, we crashed the internet, but you know, I think there's some truth to that also. Like, you know, you got to be careful, uh, you know, cause there's probably some hack you did for a customer because of their bug, but you're going to break a, a $3 million a year customer if you, if you don't incorporate it somehow. So. Yes, I'm getting the. I'm, I've got like early onset curmudgeon. I'm 35, <laughs> about about to be 36, and I've got three kids, and I I just started to get like the inklings of the hey, but it's it's partly maturity. It's like at, when you're when you're younger, you like let's, we just got to do it the best way possible. It's like rip it down and like just rebuild it the best, way. and then you realize that oh, there's a lot of reasons why these institutions, why these systems are in place, and like we can't just rip everything out. We have to. Then and then that breeds the maturity of va- value and delivery of value, right? Because then it's like, okay, well, if we're just going to be, if we need, we know we need to be useful to earn, and so how yeah. can we be useful? And then how can we achieve that without like breaking other things and be very direct with it? And so that's where I I'm think at currently. Innovation is awesome, but I also think that it's important to understand things that were tried and you know why they worked or didn't work and you could disagree with whether they worked or not and why they worked or didn't work but it's important to try to understand i saw this when you know we were at akamai and we tried to get into ad tech and akamai is full of super smart people super super smart people but you know like when you go into an industry and you're super smart but you have no idea why anything is the way it is people know and it's actually like it's important um, uh, so if you're building a database, uh, it's important to know what to throw out. It's important to understand that some of the stuff is important for certain reasons. Like if you want to deselect it, um, and we did when we built, you know, Kentec, we were like, uh, or it was called cloud helix and Hydra SQL. And actually I forget what I called it before Ian, uh, named it Hydra SQL. But, um, uh, you know, it was like, we're not going to do that because we're going to be a pen only. It's like, you try to figure out these constraints and do wishful architecture that allows you to get started and say, okay, well, but we've architected it so we can go do that. It's like one of my favorite content marketing sites is um, enterpriseready.org, I think, uh, from Replicated. And it's like, oh, you little SaaSlets, you want to start a SaaS company? Here's the shit you need to think about. You don't need to build it. You just need to realize at some point you're going to need to do SSO. You're going to need to do world-based access control, RBAC, you're going to need to do, do like, you know, some sort of logging in and access to that for the enterprise. There's a whole bunch of stuff that you're going to need to do. And it's a lot, it turns out it's a lot easier, even if you're not going to build it, if you don't build inconsistent with things, you know, you're going to need to build. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, it can be helpful. So I was reading an article about Kentik and they talked about how you were observing a cyber attack in Ukraine. Can you tell me about that? Well, we, we um, to talk about that. <laughs> uh, yes, we're allowed to talk about that. Okay. I mean, it turns out that the a lot of the cyber attacks are really more like kidnappings almost. It's like, you know, DDoS 
is something, DDoS detection is something that more than half of our customers use Kentic for. Um, so real-time distributed, seeing all the telemetry in real-time, where are, they, are these attacks? Are they misconfigs? Is the application, is someone pounding your API? Or is it someone from the outside just like blasting you with traffic? What should I do about it? That's a, that's a big use case for us, for folks that are internet focused. And a lot of these cyber attacks are just volumetric. So um, in some sense, DDoS is like, you know, I shove your head in a toilet. And, and that makes it easier for me to pick your pocket. Um, but it's not real. It's, is it really security? Like I get into your databases and I hack all your stuff. You know, I, I believe that incident was, you know, uh, interesting kind of attack um, coming in um, against both infrastructure and, you know, effectively infrastructure, you know, sites and, and, and users in, in Ukraine. And unfortunately that stuff happens an awful lot. Um, you know, not only that, but another thing that, that we track that Doug Maduri tracks, um, you know, at Kentic is, uh, is, uh, you know, just suppression of the internet, you know, in certain regions when politically, uh, uh, local, I guess you can say regimes, governments, um, don't want people to be, uh, communicating at that time. Um, and that, uh, you know, that's still happening all over the world, uh, in various ways. I'm sorry that my, it's okay. Master lights just went off, but it's all right. Your wife needed to go to bed. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh yeah. so tell me, tell me like, so you can abstract it to some made up government name, but how does the government actually per- suppress parts of the internet specifically? Well, in a lot of countries, um, I mean, you know, there's a lot of countries in the world <laughs> and in an awful lot of them. Um, it turns out that the ISPs, um, have to do whatever the government says. So if they say, you know, in some countries, uh, there's filters in place for layer four through layer seven content. In uh-huh. some places there's infrastructure to push layer three, like black holes and things for that the government tells you to do. And in some cases it's find the Igor switch and just go, oh, um, and then all of a sudden the cell towers go off or the data to the cell towers go off or, um, the default route, if you know what that is, you know, goes away. Um, uh, and you can only get internal, uh, to certain networks or applications. Like sometimes it's DNS filtering. Sometimes it's, you know, different layers and in an awful lot of countries, I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens, probably more than half the countries in the world. Um, it's, you know, it may be deregulated, but it's, it's tightly controlled. Um, you know, some of the ministry of truth communications, packets, bits, uh, whatever, uh, says make it stop, then they make it stop to whatever their technical capability. And that could be regionally, that could be at a layer that could be blocking IP addresses or DNS, you know, it's just different per different countries. That's crazy. Do we do that here in America? Not like that. No. Um, uh, no, we don't. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting actually in China right now. Uh, well, in Hong Kong. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's different. Um, but uh, no, in America, the government does have certain abilities to subpoena information, um, uh-huh. you know, and get court orders. And that's been going on for a very long time. And, you know, it's a regulatory framework. Uh, but no, they can't say, make this stop, and then it will just stop. Um, again, they could. they might be able to get a subpoena to instruct them to turn off a user, but not a city. Now, I don't want to get too much into politics, 
well, there's Twitter definitely files people is a is an event that happened that's yeah was covered it, by both, but it, they they were the the data was given access to both. Yeah, a variety of political people or, or writers that had a variety of political events. So it was it was covered in a pretty good scale. But it was definitely both both sides, both sides of the government in the United States, both parties were doing yeah. things to uh, prohibit content from from being. Uh, they were censoring oh, okay. content. Okay, so so now there's multiple layers, right? Yeah. You're familiar with the, you know, sort of the network stack, you know, and you have, mm -hmm. you know, transport. And so people argue is politics layer zero or layer eight, right? Or layer nine, whatever. I'm like, wh where is the politics in that? But I would say it's up the stack, right? Because it's it's the content, right? So I think there's infrastructure. And I would say even up through layer seven, like infrastructure that's proxies that's doing things and down is one thing. Putting financial like boycotts or legal or regulatory pressure or political pressure or marketing pressure to show or not show something, I, I sort of, that's like above my pay grade. That's above the internet. Yeah. That's yeah. above the infrastructure. So, but if you just look at the infrastructure side of it, including proxying it all the way down, no, that's not, that's not something, um, that we've done, but there's definitely people, some of my libertarian friends are concerned that some of the rights that the government asserted or was talking about asserting, you know, as we were figuring out the COVID response are awfully close to, you know, Hey, maybe we should. And to your you know, to your point, if you go way above the infrastructure, what is harmful speech? And again, that's a whole separate thing. Yeah. And uh, sort of view it as above the infrastructure. So, okay. So, in other countries, I guess to to circle back to the beginning yeah. of this, in other countries, they're messing with the lower all the layers. They'll just shut pipes off. Yeah. Turn entire things off. Yeah. We're not From, doing that here. Okay. No. No. No, right. and we don't have, you know, sort of like the great firewalls, uh, which some countries have. Um, you know, I've had people tell me, oh, this network copies all their packets. I'm like, I know they don't because I know before, you know, they were a customer, they had basically no visibility. Like I knew, I know what their, I know what their infrastructure is for seeing what their network is. And I know there's no great packet taps running on, you know, American infrastructure. Do you think that... Starlink is going to pose a problem to these countries' ability to Im impose these restrictions? You know, I think it's an interesting question. Um, uh, I, Starlink is much closer to infrastructure than VPNs, but VPNs have, you know, been an area of concern for these countries. In fact, India has basically said, like, you cannot run VPNs in our country unless, uh, you know, unless you give us the keys. And so most VPN providers have pulled out of there. You know, Starlink so far... Um, I think there's been some political, uh, you know, are they serving certain areas or not? But I think so far that's been at the level of sort of marketing and pressure and not regulatory, but I could be wrong. Uh, I'm not an expert on that. That's fascinating to me. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's definitely an important part of the world. And, you know, a lot of people are like, I, I flew here on a flight, didn't have Wi-Fi, And I was like, well, you know, that's, uh. Uh, okay. You know, I'll read a book. I've got, I've got Kindle, but I, I've talked to people in the, in the last few months who are like, it's horrible. It's a crime. I don't have Wi-Fi. I'm flying 30,000 feet 
at uh-huh. uh, you know uh, 600 miles an hour, and I don't have Wi-Fi. Like, how could this happen? Uh, but you know, I've had enough time uh, remembering. Uh, uh, you know, uh, when that wasn't the case, that I guess uh, it seems more amazing to me that we have it. So, uh, but yes, it's definitely scary. Um, there's countries is 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 you may be following where the infrastructure is definitely being put into place that you might not be able to travel, you might not be able to bank if you have unpopular opinions. So, um, uh, you know, it's it's scary what technology can do, and it's great what technology can do. Yeah, drive people towards systems that will allow them to, and then those systems uh, yes. will. Uh, I'm a big fan of decentralized and, um, you know, on the other hand, you actually have to be, uh, part of, for example, banking and you have to be part of some of these systems. So, uh, but how can you do that as much decentralized as possible is, is, you know, it's good to have options at least. Yeah. 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 We're having, um, and, and Josh, correct me if I'm wrong. Is it David Johnson? He coined the phrase D apps. Uh, we're, he's working on a new project. I found him through a friend of a friend and it was called Morpheus, M-O-R.org. And it's essentially decentralized AI. Uh, so decentralized GPT that can make it, it just makes it more accessible. So I can actually download it. It can run locally. It can be decentralized and I can have it do things like I could say, uh, you know, hey, go buy this or make this type of transactions. And it helps with the uh, making those types of transactions more accessible to people that don't necessarily know how to do it in a technical way. Because right now, most people that don't know how to do it in a technical way, they're, they're buying through Coinbase or whatever exchange. And this is giving that power to them to have an agent running on their computer that can do this stuff for them. Uh, and so I thought that was a pretty interesting project. So we're doing a special episode on that in like the next two weeks. I, you know, this is a little bit separate, uh, mostly separate from, you know, sort of what I'm doing, you know, uh, my day job at Kintec, but, um, it's okay. It's really interesting. The, we talked about software engineering and mythical man month and trade-offs, right? Um, what people say versus what people do. When there's a conflict between convenience and privacy, what percentage of people will actually go for, you know, the privacy? And so, you know, how do you make it maximally convenient? But then again, you know, I think more about DApps and like communication and how do you do that with Reddit and Twitter, you know, all those things. But, um, and, uh, uh, you know, I'm a Usenet fan from way back. Um, you know, and obviously we figured out how to do a chat and these other things. Um, but, um, you know, there's advantages to centralized, right? I mean, I use Twitter a lot still to consume information. Uh, I try using Usenet, but there's too much garbage there. So I don't do that. Um, and, uh, I don't just don't have enough time, uh, generally. So, uh, I spend most of my time on RSS feeds, catching up 30 days behind before Feedly marks all them as red. So <laughs> I like that. Uh, convenience versus privacy because the more convenient it is the harder it is to get the privacy typically privacy is something you have to go seek out yes and it's unfortunate but there's a whole bunch of things that we need to sort of train people to do right even before ai you know just with wikipedia and everything else it's like amazing what we can get on the internet but you need to have a good bullshit filter right you need to be able to sense emotion words and agendas and all those things and so I think that should be a key, 
like, you know, bullshit filter 101, 102, 201, 202, that should be like a high school uh, track, you know, this taking control of your own privacy to the extent you want to. Um, you know, it's unfortunate, but if you're not into technology or, you know, um, and if uh, to be where, uh, to participate in the kind of things that everyone else does, um, you know, it's really hard to do that. You know, it, it, it could be tough, whether that's communication or, you know, commerce or whatever. So um, the good news is there's a lot of people passionate about it and innovating and we're just at the beginning. So have you looked at uh, the Unstoppable Domains project? I have pro- probably like web only three read. Domains. Yes, I mean I have some ENS domains, uh, but uh, that's not the that's not the that's not the Ethereum naming service. Unstoppable was something else, right? I'm fuzzy on it. It's been a few years. Yeah, I think they used it. I I haven't. I'm not an expert in this area either. Mm-hmm. My yeah. it was a weekend rabbit hole, is what I call it. Uh, right? okay. I went on a weekend rabbit hole of unstoppable domains, Web three uh, domains, okay. and basically how they're the way the way that they're working in the sense that you can't go get a court order subpoena and shut and and take it to GoDaddy or I can or whatever it is and just stop the domain if you don't like what's happening on the domain, mm-hmm. right? And yes. so that was that that single utility was interesting to me. And so I started saying like, oh, well, if I want to have a domain like this, how is it going to, you know, work? And that's that's kind of where I got a little a little fuzzy is if they're if they own the, the lower layers, can they not just stop you from accessing those domain extensions? Right. Well, yeah, I don't want to, I mean, we can go down to the crypto rabbit hole as much as you'd like, uh, and I'm a little fuzzy on some of it because I, I haven't looked at the domain stuff, which is embarrassing because I am actually uh, a semi-official um, and the minister of bits for Sealand, um, uh, which is a uh, which is a uh, principality in the North Sea, um, and uh, in partnership with them, we did Havenco, which is putting servers out in the North Sea, uh over 20 years ago um and it turns out that should have been decentralized but the tech wasn't there for it at the time but they sell turns out non-fungible entities like uh territory and titles and things like that so we've looked a lot at crypto and things like that um and um you know you 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 look at a lot of the blockchain stuff and i think there can you can hold in your head the two truths one of them is an awful lot of blockchain stuff could be a MySQL or SQLite database, you know, with an API in a couple Amazon regions. Um, because as you said, like, yeah, it's theoretically the blockchain, but if you control the interfaces to it, uh, you could actually censor it as much as you want, right? Um, on the other hand, there's some stuff that, you know, is actually pretty, could be pretty practical if it were just faster, like Filecoin IPFS type stuff. And there's other Ooh. stuff that, you know, maybe... Uh, maybe uh uh as much as i like the idea and this is something we debated for haven co for for sealand rather of you know uh if they ever did citizenship you know how much of it would be tied to economics and how much of it would be tied to unique personhood scanning your eyeball and the way they implement it i'm not sure that's the right way to do it either so yeah the interplanetary file system that thing to me is so file coin and storage are like 80% of my crypto holdings and, because... And Sia and MadeSafe and you have any Chia, which is... No. Chia makes me angry. 
uh, Bram's a brilliant guy, <laughs> but filling up hard disks with nothing and not stirring anything on them. Come on. That's not, I mean, it's greener than proof of work, but not that much. But, uh, yeah, I think the prod, the challenge is, uh, all of them are really good. I would just use Usenet. I mean, Usenet's, uh, a third of a petabyte a day and it's fast. Um, and it's, I mean, it's less, it's less decentralized than when there were a hundred people doing full feeds because 30 gigabits a second, but there's a lot of people doing it. Um, you can post and get it. I know there's been work. I know Cloudflare and other people have built IPFS gateways and I think the innovation is great. I'm a little frustrated. They took half a billion dollars and I don't know what, five years ago, I expect some more to come out of it. But I think this, the, the challenge, and I think storage has made some progress towards this is you need fast and reliable. Like it's okay to be, have it be like a mesh and sort of permanent and available, but you need it to be fast and reliable or it's this privacy and security versus convenience. Look up Tahoe-LAFS. So actually pre-Kentic, and this is a sort of a goof aside project, Zuko of, of uh, um, you know, of Zcash, I, I mean, I think it's still maintained, but they were doing a, a erasure-coded, decentralized, cryptographically, you know, um, everything file system. And we tried to get people to use it and sort of by nature of, uh, are you familiar with erasure coding? Nope. Okay. It's like Super Raid. So think about okay. Super Raid where instead of all the disks being right next to each other, uh -huh. um, one way you could deploy it is so that you're running like rate six on eight disks. So you got 10 disks, but you put four of them, you put five of them in different places, uh, in each of two different places. So to get any object back, you need to get some chunks from two places. So someone stole, like the government walked in and took all your stuff. They get nothing. Now you extrapolate that sort of the same underlying math um of encoding and you have five locations and eight disks is sufficient to you know pull everything back but you only have six disks at each location sounds really good but in practice if you deploy it like that you'll have a buttload of latency to get anything mm -hmm. um and so you get into these problems that some of those systems have and i think storage has actually done a lot of work to say uh maybe it's good to actually use these technologies but we should actually make a market in it and like have some locations where you, it's just like S3. Like, you know, we incent people to run it, but they're running it in data centers and, you know, it's fast enough and stuff like that. And it's interesting because you see, if you didn't follow Chia, it was really fascinating because in, I think it was 2020, basically they went from zero to 30 exabytes of people crawling around you know, Unix surplus and buying for you's and sticking motherboards. And it was like 30 years ago at computer shows and we used to put computers together. Um, and you know, running NASs basically, you know, 36, just, you know, in their living room for the promise of crypto. Um, and then people would fill up data centers with them. I have friends that still run dozens of petabytes of, you know, of Chia because they'll do something else with the hardware. Um, actually they're using it freaks. Uh, you know, so they'll figure out to just do, you know, storage with them. I just would like to see Chia be a awesome blockchain that supports, uh, you know, Ethereum, like, you know, coding on top that actually just signs objects that you store so that you're filling up these hard disks with 
signatures and objects, not just signatures, uh, not just, you know, random garbage that's signed. I think that'd be pretty cool because it turns out that, you know, a lot of the Chia stuff they've incented through, you know, I mean, people interested in hype, whatever, to be in really well-connected data centers so you could do some really cool storage stuff. I think the challenge is if you look at Wasabi, which is a commercial um, S3 competitor, you look at um, Backblaze, which is an amazing company. Again, second favorite content marketing, all their hard disk, reli hard drive reliability reports, now SSD. Um, you know, I think it's, uh, uh, you know, Backblaze has, has through content marketing, uh, pricing, nerd friendliness, a lot of different ways, their angle. I think Wasabi was going at it from a, you know, bandwidth uh, advantageousness and now Cloudflare is doing it. I think it's hard to compete with S3. So, uh, you know, you got to think pretty carefully, why am I doing this? What am I doing? But at the same time, if you're going to, if you're going to do it and it's not convenient for people to use, then you have to be a little bit of a nutcase, which I am, you know, to use some of that technology. So I think that's something that the decentralized storage people have to crack. I apologize. I, I geek about network and also storage no and, and also, you know, uh, systems and clustering and stuff like that. So back when I became a hobbyist, there was no sysadmin network uh, programmer. It was just nerd. So, you know, oh, yeah. we, we've yeah, sort we, of specialized. <laughs> yeah, we, we specialized into, into uh, different, you know, hyper-specialties, so... Yeah, my dad uh, was an engineer. He learned in the Air Force and he came out and then did like odd jobs and would take me around with him to the different buildings and, and the projects that he had. And so I got exposure to a large variety of different types of technology from hotel systems getting their first electronic locks to the tax company getting their first computers to, you know, uh, radio companies doing all sorts of interesting things with radio towers. And so, uh, yeah. That, and, and back then I was just the, I got, I was, I got the privilege of, of being born into that family because, and we weren't wealthy or anything, but just because, uh, I got access to that technology and I got to see it. And so at school, I was just the nerd at school. Like I was the, the computer and there was just nerd. It was like, you could do yeah. websites, networking, like yeah. it was all things nerd, video games included. Like, and, and so, uh, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't video games for me, but I was definitely, I mean, I was definitely nerd. But again, contemporaneously in 1978, when I got into computers, when I was eight, very fortunate family stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, my uncle, um, uh, who, you know, was of the Elmer generation, you know, of the, uh, you know, in the ham and electronics and you know, all that, um, uh, gave me a book on basic. Uh, and mm -hmm. um, there weren't a lot of computers around the rent basic uh at the time but my father happened to have some because he was a doctor both doctors he was a doctor doing medical research and he happened to have a wizard uh who was a unix bigot back then who got me into mm -hmm. that so it was just very fortunate but i was going to ask if you were a ham because it sounds like uh you know with that kind of like going around and a lot of those people uh you know into ham and i had a lot of I started the first ISP in Philadelphia and a lot of my customers were hams that got into building ISPs because they just love to communicate and stuff like that. But Yes, I don't do it regularly, but I have the equipment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> we ha we, I, live in a, uh, I live an hour outside of Nashville in a farming okay. community. And so <laughs> we're like the smallest, we have seven acres. We're like the smallest plot. Everyone around us is like 90, 100 <laughs> acres. But they yeah. all, they'll talk to each other yeah, yeah. You know, because because it's it's 
it's odd if we've got strangers hanging around, you know, it's yeah. like you don't, you don't just come, we're like a secondary road. Like you, yeah. you, there's a reason why you're here if you're here or you're lost. <laughs> hey ma, Waze is confused again. <laughs> right. Actually, when I bought this place, I had to train Google maps right. multiple times for it to even direct me back to the correct oh, wow. spot. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Cause wow. it thought a road existed that didn't exist and, and it was, uh, it was fun, but that's hey, why it's important the, to have a bullshit detector. So you don't drive yeah. off a cliff cause Google told you to. <laughs> that's the generation <laughs> under me has that problem. I got lucky. Yeah. I was, I tell people I have a brother who's three years older than me. He's a doctor, His sister's three years younger. She's a science teacher. And, and I was the last generation that was like what I call this, you know, home by streetlights, right? Mm-hmm. Because I could see my sister, my, you know, three years younger than me and her friends where it was like, you go to jail if you're allowed outside. And then my right. brother and me were like locked outside so mom can watch her soaps and drink from the hose. You're not getting in the house to get roll yeah. out. <laughs> she needs yeah. some me time. And so yeah. uh, we were that like last generation where they would instruct us to go play in the woods a mile away. <laughs> you know uh so so i did get i i did get that um one thing i i really wanted to talk with you about i don't know if you if you study it or a lot but i'm i know you see a lot of traffic and you know a lot about the the underlying parts of the internet and the different layers i was having a conversation with a buddy of mine who is dave mccall great guy he's the evangelist at qts data centers they're like the largest data center yep. by square foot you know them okay yep. uh and so dave's awesome guy he's got a podcast and everything and, and we were having dinner and they were telling me about how the, the growth is exploding so he showed me this graph in his office and he was like here's this graph and he goes point to where gpt came out <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> where where generative AI became mainstream, you could see it as like January, February of last year. It was like, yeah. whoa! Yeah. So you saw the hockey stick before and data s- storage, compute centers, and all that. Have Have you ever been to Ashburn, Virginia? No, no. Okay, so the center of the internet, uh, well, it used to be Tyson's Corner, it used to be McLean uh, slash Vienna, Virginia. And then there just wasn't enough space and they didn't have road zippers and there wasn't enough fiber and, you know, uh, they just need more space and power. So they moved out to Ashburn, which is where Dulles is. So, um, the Udvar-Hazy, uh, uh, Air and Space Museum expansion with the space shuttle and all that stuff, but you know, Dulles airport. So around there, just north of there, there used to be, you know, like, uh, UNIT had some stuff, Worldcom uh equinix had some stuff and i remember when the first wholesale data center went in and uh because right next to the one where kentuck has some stuff i had some stuff my 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 personal colo is and uh and uh this massive building it was uh dupont fabros which is i think now owned by drt um digital realty and i was like talking to all my friends and apple's like oh yeah that's our data center and Microsoft's like, yeah, that's our data center. And Facebook's like, yeah, that's our data center. And there was the beginning of this wholesale where you buy 10 megawatts at a time. Yeah. Um, you know, each room is a megawatt and you're buying 10 megawatts. And that was low power density because now they're talking about 10, 20, 30 kilowatts, you know, a cabinet and water cooling and all that. And after COVID restrictions lifted, you know, every time I've been out there, like I know all the back roads to get up to Route 7, all, all the different, you know, areas. And it's like, there's another, there's another goddamn 
multi hundred megawatt data center. Like where's uh-huh. and and they've actually they can do the power. They've just said like they don't want to, which is weird because they have a property tax on equipment in Loudoun County. But I don't really understand that. But yeah, the demand is massive. Now, what's interesting is you said traffic. Uh-huh. So until we'll say ChatGPT, even though there have been these decentralized storage things and people do a lot of storage, traffic and megawatts is pretty correlated. Um, a lot of the AI stuff does a lot of networking using some, I don't want to say ancient, but older technology called InfiniBand or or its its derivatives, um, like Ethernet, but isn't Ethernet. Um, and super high bandwidth inside, but doesn't actually drive nearly as much bandwidth um, as, you know, like a web server farm or some of this other, or cloud compute infrastructure. So I hope everyone's going to be okay. Some of my friends in the data center industry have said they worry that some of the smaller competitors are signing long-term commitments for people that think they're going to be around a long time for AI, but, you know, might run out of financing, might not get the GPUs, you know, um, on the other hand, I'm bullish enough that, you know, historically it'd be a mistake to get a bet against data centers. We've got 20 massive, you know, uh, uh, call them data center companies, a couple dozen cloud data center and some massive cloud companies as customers. And I wouldn't bet against them. You know, they're just going to grow over time, but that, that hockey stick is more the internet's growing, but the space demand due to AI and power of spe- uh, power is really what we're talking about with data center. It's not actually about space. The power demand uh, has grown much faster in the last year than the bandwidth. Have you seen the people that are building the mobile data centers, mobile compute, essentially, and they're dropping them where there's excess energy, like abandoned solar farms and things like that? I think that makes a lot more sense than some of what people have been doing with edge compute, like the idea that every app needs to sit next to every cell tower. It doesn't really need mm-hmm. to be that dis- distributed, decentralized. Distributed is an architecture thing. Decentralized is a political thing almost, mm-hmm. but uh, they're related, but not the same. Um, but uh, uh, yes, I mean, that was another argument for investing in uh, sort of edge AI was not just that you could do model iteration sort of at the edge, but that you could plug them into the lamp posts and do, you know, SETI anywhere with your AI application using uh, power that's going to be used anyway. Um, uh, I, I don't know that much about um, how those folks are doing. I've just read that it's going on. Oh, yeah. I actually just invested in a fund that's doing it. Oh, cool. And so I, I, I like learned all about it. Because there's the energy people that know energy, there's the capital mm-hmm. people that know capital, yeah. and then there's the compute, like the operators that know. Yeah. And so this firm was like bringing these three things together and st- because the capital doesn't know how to evaluate the deals. They're like, oh, right, it's right, a compute right. box that they're putting on this energy, pl- you know, surplus energy. Yeah, and it turns out there's, there's a lot of energy that just needs to be produced. I mean, the way that energy is produced is you can't just turn it off when there's no demand. Like you have to be producing um, Otherwise, you pay. You pay. <laughs> right. It's curtailment like, cost. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's like it's like the cars. You know. It's like if your regenerative brakes. You know. If your battery's too full, uh, you don't have big heat sinks on the back of the car. You can't. You can't use the regenerative brakes if the battery's too full. Uh, you know. It's. It could be hard to wrap your head around. Yeah. For a software guy. <laughs> yeah. Studied. 
studied physics and and I I have built more crappy electronics project than you'd ever want to see and discovered that cheese my boards ADHD. everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I can, I have soldered, I have repaired things with solder, but breadboards is, is my thing, you know? Uh, and if I'm going to hook it up to an actual computer that I care about, you know, like, like relays and opto isolators and shit like that. So, but yes, I used to inhabit, never worked at a radio shack, but I used to inhabit them for a bit. So I used to spend quite a bit of time at the, at the radio. And my dad had like a mini radio shack on his workbench with all the little. Yeah. Well, we there. had her back in radio bed and my grandfather built machines for people until he built a machine to make his own manufacturing business. So he had a whole thing. We took like reading pacers that would go, you know, like a thing up like this and built like elbow joints, built a robot. When we say we, I mean, my grandfather really designed it and <laughs> it made me do the circuit diagrams, but he was the system architect and, you know, it was, it was a, a tool to, you know, get me to, you know, trained in safety and using the bandsaw and uh, he was like, no, dude, you need to wear shoes. I cannot wear shoes because I've been working in a machine shop with metal shavings in my socks for, you know, 50 years. But, you know, how to, you know, been punished for not putting the tools back, all that stuff. So, and, and just so I can put a pin on our last thought and wrap that up. So you, you have seen, um, as far as energy and, and all that, you have seen huh? there is an increase in traffic, but it's not like directly one-to-one of the increase no. in storage and compute. Because there's a lot no, of stuff happening well, internally. storage... Storage, it's a little bit closer, but the compute and, and, and the whole separate topic is, is there's, there's stuff that is really confusing even to people that are really plugged in, which is, are we going to have network meshes or service meshes? Where is all this stuff going to be done and how is this going to evolve? And are we going to have sidecars or not sidecars? And where does load balancing and telemetry and, and health checking and all this stuff get done? That's confusing. There's a lot of people trying to say, well, the storage needs network processors and the network processors need to know storage and we're going to have different buses. And there's a lot of that evolving technology, most of which is not mainstream. But generally when people put a, a, a whole ton of hard disks in, there's going to be, a, uh, you know, some bandwidth use, not as much as for the compute compute, but GPU compute often pulls much more locally than sort of over the network network. So yes, inside that infrastructure, which could be campus-wide, the, the network's pretty big, but from the internet, which is where we've got, you know, 500 data sources, which we're seeing about 250 of them let us do aggregate use for Doug Maduri's work. Um, you know, that doesn't, that sees inside data centers, but people don't let us aggregate that. They let us aggregate, you know, across views of the internet and it doesn't, and the GPU stuff just isn't driving that much internet traffic, even the generative yeah, there's, there's traffic for some of the generative video and I mean, images and, and videos, you know, there and coming, but it isn't that much. Now one could argue it's more YouTube uploads and stuff like that. So it'd be sort of hidden in other things if the AI is in shittifying us as Cory Doctorow, you know, beliefs, but, um, I'm not saying he's wrong, uh, but, uh, uh, I don't think it's, it's hard I think it's still noise compared to baseball games that get uploaded to YouTube, but I don't have a data to point to for that. You'd have to talk to someone at Google. Yeah, I just had a conversation with somebody about uh, Spotify and them yeah. having working on, on their issues with storage because people are uploading tons of generated music, like rapidly. Yep. And so yep. now they're, they're trying to put a ceiling on it or a floor, whatever you want to call it. But basically, if your content's not getting X amount of engagement within Y time, then you're not going to, it's not going to store it, you know? Hmm. So. Interesting. 
yeah, yeah they're talking about uh, offloading because they're they were they were full. My <laughs> my brother in law is a music producer. Uh, so he's not a technology guy, but he was just right. like, yeah, I was at Spotify's headquarters and they're telling me how their data centers are full and they can't store anything more. I was like, well, that's not exactly how storage works. But what they're saying yeah. is according to their business model of like yes, how much yes. they're going to spend on it's storage, not like they they're full. It's not like they can figure out how to do it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. He yeah was I like, know the Spotify oh, yeah. folks. They're, they're not, yeah, they could do it if they wanted to. Oh, they could do yeah, it. I think yeah. that, I think inchidification is a much bigger threat than Skynet. You know, if you're going to be worried about something, can you give me? Can you give me the thirty? I don't know this. The thirty second overview is what is this? Oh, this which Skynet or Enchidification? Enchidification. Um. So Cory Doctorow, who I've been following since he wrote "When Sysadmins Rule the Planet," which is a great short story about how Usenet saves the world. Uh, basically, a bunch of people in data centers with air filtration are the only people that survive, and then how do they, you know, try to reconstruct society or not? Um, he's been writing about sort of the uh, uh, potential dystopian side effects of technology for some time. And he's very concerned about large centralized technology companies and, you know, their ability to, you know, apply policy um, uh, with co- intended and unintended consequences. Um, and, you know, also, uh, you know, about some of the consequences of AI and, you know, if you can generate content, you know, uh, that looks close, uh, can program people, you know, all this stuff. Um, so, uh, he's a good guy to follow. I think he's, um, is he a part owner of Boing Boing? Might be. Um, I don't know. What's his last name? Corey so, what? Doctoro. D-O-C-O-T-O-R-O-W. Sorry. It's late for me. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry, man. We're we're gonna wrap up. Yeah, here. he's a famous, yeah, famous science fiction author, um, science fiction, fantasy, you know, et cetera. So, really, uh, more science fiction actually. Science fiction. Craphound.com yes. looks like yes. his. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you wow. Follow, if you want to, if you want to follow stuff like this, and Bruce Schneier, sort of sometimes, if you want to think about, I by the way, I didn't coin privacy versus convenience. I'm sure it was Bruce Schneier or someone like that. You know, that did. It's uh, spell his name again. Bruce S C H N E I R probably. You might not. Uh, know he this writes about, about me, security, but I am a huge fan of movies, and I love uh-huh. like new story. When you said that storyline just now, my mouth uh-huh. was watering. I was like, "Are you kidding me? I, that is so unique. I've never seen a movie on that. I've never read a book on that. If there's a book about uh, that, makes so much sense, right? Some virus or something happens, and then they yeah. have fil- filtered the air. They air filtration, and then they yeah. have to, you know, do use net. Uh, that's amazing yeah Ender's Game filtered out the part that I think is really fascinating about the books which is they actually posited this worldwide thing called the net where reasoned intellectual discourse happened they got that wrong but (laughs) (laughs) but it was interesting yeah yeah, there was information warfare because these these two brilliant children actually adopted uh, alter egos Locke and Demosthenes and and sort of did the the DI thing and and programmed the populace uh, for towards politics. It was a little prescient. These are these are fascinating subjects. When you come across that, think of me. Be like, if you come across cool stuff oh, sure. like that, just be like, I'm just going to forward My this wife to Joel. And I yeah. Met at a world at the World Science Fiction Convention in Chicago in uh, 1991. So uh, I've been oh, wow. following this stuff for a while. Yes. Okay. If I really don't like you, I'll I'll start forwarding you some lit RPG series that I like, uh, which is a trashy subgenre of both fantasy and science fiction that actually 
uh, often posit, sometimes the god or goddess picks you up and puts you in a universe where you've got game type mechanics, and sometimes it's you upload yourself to VR, and sometimes, anyway, it's, it's a that guilty pleasure. That is but, interesting. We need yeah, to, we need to, set, we need to forward some of that stuff to Hollywood, get some of those, all, all we've got is like a couple ready player ones out here. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> We need exactly. more. Yeah. Uh, I want to do a little bit of work with you real quick before we wrap up. The problem that people are experiencing when they think that Kintik might be a solution or if they're having this problem and you, you see, okay, you know, a lot of my customers are having these sets of problems and that's why they seek us out. For anyone who's listening that might be having these problems, what are they? Uh, performance or security problems in your network infrastructure or you are the people that run that infrastructure and you spend way too much time on bullshit. Um, people reporting problems and you're still debugging it by the time the problem's going away. Um, you need to work with your peers and I don't know if you've heard of MTTI, mean time to innocence. So we take all the data, keep it, um, using, we've used machine learning. Now we're using LLMs with the appropriate guardrails to try to, uh, to help people do their jobs better, surface the insights, point them to where they need to look at, um, a little bit of automated remediation. Um, the network industry promises that's possible. I think it's a little bit early for, you know, Skynet driven networks, but uh, making the job of the network professionals easier, uh, helping them work with other groups. Um, sometimes that's security. Um, usually it's more, usually it's uh, operations. Um, and, you know, on the business side, it's, you know, if, if your business is dependent on the network uh, to connect your people, to have your revenue flow, uh, the other observability systems don't really understand the network infrastructure unless you're only super hipster eBPF in the cloud, um, which is, Kubernetes doesn't have an ESP driver, so like the it still needs to generate packets that flow over some network somewhere, and someone's got to make it work. So uh, that's Kentix Jam. Nailed it. It's just Kentix.com, the network yeah. observability platform, everything you ever wanted to know about your network from data center to container to cloud. I'm just reading off your homepage. That's very <laughs> elegantly spoken. Thank you. Avi, thank you so much for doing this. We made a podcast. How do you feel? Uh, awesome. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.